The content here is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com forward slash disclosures. Angela Strange is a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, where she focuses on financial services, including fintech infrastructure, insurance, real estate, and increasing financial inclusivity. In the fintech world, Angela is well known for coining the idea that every company will be a fintech company, an idea driven by the influx of new transformative financial infrastructure tools that enable non-fintech companies to derive a significant portion of their revenue through financial products. Today, Angela serves on the boards of Addy, Kasai, Jeeves, Move, SeedFi, SynapseFi, Tally, and Balan. Prior to joining A16Z, Angela was most recently a product manager at Google, where she launched and grew Chrome for Android and iOS, and she started her career as a consultant at Mercer. In today's episode, Angela tells us more about her journey into investing, what principles she brings from her experiences at Google into her role as an investor and partner at A16Z, why every company is a fintech company, what lies ahead for fintech, and so much more. Hey, Angela, welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Where are you calling in from today? Hey, Nir, thanks for having me. I'm calling from San Francisco. Great. So for our listeners, can we start with your background and how you came to be in fintech? Yeah, let's see. I'm from Ottawa, Canada originally, and uh, I've now been at A16Z almost eight years. And it's uh, it's an interesting confluence of a, a bunch of things over my career. Uh, when I was young, I, I actually wanted to be an accountant, followed by a tax lawyer. Uh, I don't think I would have been good at any of those. So luckily, I was talked out of them and did a degree in engineering instead. Uh, but I've always just loved financial services. Out of business school, probably like many of your listeners, I, I really wanted to get into venture capital. And so I, I joined a venture firm for a couple of years, did that not in fintech, uh, loved the job, but realized I thought I would be a, a much better board member if I if I went and I switched sides of the table and um, tried my hand at starting to build a company. And so I was lucky to join as the, the founding team of an early startup uh, doing products and discovered I loved products. So I, I did that for 10 years at the startup. And then uh, we were bought into Google and did that. And finally, you know, sort of early 2013, 2014, FinTech was becoming a thing. And there was finally a way to do products, financial services, and venture all in one. And that's what I've been fortunate enough to do at Andreessen Horowitz. I want to dig in on your experiences at Google. So when you look back, what were some of those operating principles that you picked up there that have really translated well into how you invest today? One of the things that I think makes the the venture job so interesting is that there's really no one way to do it, um, which is also what makes it very challenging. But if you look at some of the best investors, they bring their really unique take to the job, mostly based on their experience, right? So if they have a finance background, you know, maybe they understand co-workers, unit economics, how that grows better than anyone else, sales backgrounds, lean into go to market. Um, I always have a product background, which is very much my lens when I look at when I look at financial services. And I think 
is a great lens to have in financial service because up until recently, you, you'd look around and there's great consumer experiences, there's great business experiences for you know a whole variety of reasons. Uh, the the product experiences in financial services were were really not that great, both on the consumer side and both on the business side. And so just having that product thinking around, you know, what do you think people want? And then when it doesn't exist, sure, you can ask users, you can ask businesses, but often it's looking at other spaces and pulling the best in class types of products and experiences and, and bringing them in. And, and obviously, I'm not doing that myself anymore. I'm just helping find people who are doing that and, and, and supporting them. Uh, but my product lens is very much what I, what I bring to venture. Uh, so that's sort of point one. And then point two from from Google specifically, and there's and there's other companies like this, but I think Google PMs tend to be more technical. Like I think until recently they required a computer science background, and you can say, well, maybe then you're too infrastructure looking and not enough looking at the market. But I think the advantage, especially in financial services, is that the reason sometimes the user experiences are bad has a lot to do with infrastructure or deep in the regulation. And if you can really understand the plumbing, then you can understand how it might be remade and how you might be able to make a much more beautiful payments experience or lending experience or, or something else along those lines. There are a couple of points there that I want to spend a little bit more time on, specifically the plumbing and just bringing a product mindset from the get-go. You spent a lot of time at Chrome in the early days and on Android as well. Today, especially in emerging markets, Google has become an incredible vessel for payments products, financial services broadly. I'm curious if that was a, a part of the thinking in the early days, uh, you know, building in the plumbing for financial services and what Google Pay as an example is today. Yeah, so I was lucky to be on the, the very early team that started uh, Chrome for Mobile. And so this was Android and, and this was iOS, uh, which originally, you know, we started adding payment features at the end, but the beginning had had no payment features. Um, and, and the things that it was, it was interesting because you could look at, um, like we started as having a, a front end PM team and a, and a back end PM team. And, you know, front end would be, you know, how do your tabs look? What are the cool reading list features? And back end might be things that seemed less um, producty. But then really what happened was the best products were things like speed or how quickly do your tabs load or like what exactly is the user type touch experience. And so it was very much like a mindset of that plumbing coming to the foreground that brings the best product experiences. And I think that has shaped, you know, I spend most of my time in and around fintech infrastructure. And if you can make the infrastructure accessible, really easy to use, great documentation um, across all different areas, then you're going to see more and more people adding financial services and just better user experiences being built. So reflecting back on a presentation that you made several years ago, uh, you know, every company will be a fintech company, quote unquote. It was obviously pressing at the time. I want to get your assessment on how those assumptions have played out, though. What has played out in the way you expected and what hasn't played out? Yeah, the, the thesis at the time, which is still playing out to your point, is that every company should be looking to incorporate financial services to better attract their users, better retain their users, and, and better monetize their users. And it's hard to find a company where this doesn't apply in some way. 
obvious examples that we all know of, like like Lyft, for instance, is where I go get my rides. But if I'm a driver, I also might have a payment card, I have a bank account. It's where I get paid immediately. You know, Shopify for businesses is continually adding new lending features, new banking features. Um, and so this just continues to play out across more and more different types of companies. I think the the two things that have been a little bit slower than I might have expected would be if you think of the first, if you think of the range of financial services experiences that could be added, right, from payments to lending to you continue on and you, you get to insurance. I think some of them have turned out to be harder to um infrastructurize, if you can even make that a word, or create the easy infrastructure to do it um, for a variety of reasons, right? Like take lending. Lots of companies sit on lots of data. They have lots of customers. But it's not that you can just plug in this simple API, right? Like you have to get your data out. You have to build a credit model. You have to figure out what your risk you want to take. You probably have to raise a capital line. So it's just a, a much heavier lift for some of the fintech pieces that need to go in there. Uh, so those have been a little bit slower. And there's, of course, you know, companies that are building those services and those look less like a easy to plug in API, but much more of a heavier lift. So that's sort of point one. Um, another example that would be insurance, which I expected would have much more infrastructure to add on. And I think the challenge there has been there's many different lines you can add. There's very different nuances to it. Right. So. Workers comp as a service is going to look very different than another type of, of insurance as a service. And so that's been a little bit more difficult. Do companies want an API or do they want the full solution? And I think there's, I think there's room for both, depending on how tech forward uh, the company is, how much engineering resources they have to devote to that. But I, I think that's an area of the ecosystem that's, that's still figuring things out. So a company that in the recent past has really epitomized this quote of every company will be a fintech company it seems to be toast where you know a significant portion of their their revenue is derived from financial services in today's world the idea of a vertical saas company becoming a vessel for financial services seems to be getting a lot of excitement do you feel like from a venture standpoint there's a little bit of overexcitement there is is financial services and the ability to embed financial services as a as a significant revenue driver really that big of an opportunity for all vertical SaaS plays, or what are the characteristics that need to play out? Yeah, my uh, my colleagues actually, Joe Schmidt and Christina Shen, just uh, put out a post today on uh, on operating systems, and and we wrote something a little while back with fintech scales vertical SaaS. I'm I'm obviously an eternal optimist, and I invest in this space, and so I'm I'm by default very very bullish here. But I think the you know the the data we looked at and you know Toast is one great example, but there's there's several others. Is that by adding financial services, you can two to five x your TAM, and so industries that might look small at the outset, uh, and you know, you know we've looked at some fairly. Um, I'm hesitant to call anything obscure because if you're in it, it's obviously not obscure. But you know, there's a long list of industries that we don't spend a ton of time thinking about, like seafood distributors, for instance. Um, if you were the vertical operating system there, the, you can run the the payments, the lending, the factoring playbook on top of that and create a, a much bigger company than if you didn't have financial services. And I think if you took a list of the top 200 industries in the U.S. and you, and you went down and said, all right. Who has a modern toast-like operating system? There's many places where you would come up short where there's a real opportunity. 
All right. So Angela, the past few years saw fervor towards neobanks. In fact, low NPS with existing banks has been something that you've talked about extensively as well. However, in today's environment, it seems like banks, even the smaller regional ones, bar a few instances from a few weeks ago, seem to be in favor again. And investors are also backing companies that are serving these banks from a technology point of view. So I'm curious, what opportunities are you seeing in this space and how big of an opportunity is it to sell into these smaller regional banks and even some of these mid-sized banks? Yeah. One of my favorite expressions, which applies to all spaces, but especially financial services, is that the battle between the startup and the incumbent is whether the startup can get distribution before the incumbent gets innovation. And one of the examples that I always use for this are the, the robo-advisors. Right? We saw Wealthfront, Betterment create a category, um, got lots of customers, but it took, I think, six, seven years to get a billion dollars of assets under management. And then Swab launches their robo-advisor, and they had 50x that in six months because they already had all of the customers. And when I first started investing in, in financial services, and I can go back and look at some of uh, the, the reasons I passed on companies, I remember saying, no, no. I don't want to invest in anything that helps enable the banks. It's going to be way too slow. Those sales cycles are going to be way too slow. I want to compete with the banks. And that was very much my view five, six, seven years ago. I think what's happened, especially over the last few years, is two things. One, banks have very much realized that they can't build it all themselves, and it is in their best interest to partner with fintech companies. And then two, Fintech companies have realized the strong distribution advantage of being able to enable some of these larger companies and have just brought strong enterprise sales chops into their companies. And so, right, there's a, the larger banks, which are definitely slower to sell into, but, but possible, but a mid to long tail of thousands of community banks and credit unions that are actively looking for solutions um, to sell into their customers couple of good examples. For instance, we have a company, um, Tally, which is like a, a credit card robot that helps users pay off their credit cards in the right order and actually get out of debt. Community banks, credit unions all have customers with lots of credit card debt. They're looking for more ways to serve their customers. And that's turning out to be a very good partnership. Totally. And I, I think one of the interesting points you make there is that fintechs have sort of evolved from trying to displace banks completely and now see them as a, a collaborator instead. So to that point, in today's world, fintechs seem to get a lot of criticism where folks seem to ask them to grow up, if you will. What criticism do you think fintechs deserve? And what criticism seems to miss the point? I think, I think the one that misses the point is lumping every new fintech company into one category. Uh, like, and, you, and you're not doing this. I'm just uh, like, in general, it's like, oh, fintechs, but all fintechs are, are not created equal. And I would say that some of the fintech teams from a compliance and regulatory point of view are better than incumbent bank teams that have been around for, for a very long period of time. And so, so obviously, if fintech needs to treat regulation then differently than many other types of categories, right? You look how Uber grew, they ignored taxi regulation. Everyone in DC eventually started taking Ubers and then ah, voila, this it, it magically made it such that they were they were legal in all sorts of different cities, right? Like if you tried to do that with KYC, AML, the team would end up in jail. Uh, so we need to take this much, much more seriously. I, I think the thing that misses the mark is we should be celebrating teams that do this very, very well. 
And those are teams that um, understand the regulation. They provide comprehensive answers to regulators that when they come knocking, proactive in building regulatory relationships. Um, And I think there's definitely companies out there that regulators would hold up as being just best in class at at what they do. Actually, I can even take, I'll take an example. Um, You know, we're we're investors, and I guess this is a a bank, but also a a FinTech in in Lead Bank, which was bought by Jackie Reese's, formerly of Square. And if you talk to their regulators, they will say that their regulatory proceedings have been some of the best that they've seen in the last decade. And this, you know, it's technically a, a fintech team, but all from people that have been deeply steeped in financial services. And they have very good relationships with their regulators and hence are able to launch products for their, their BAS offerings even more quickly. Gotcha. In the echo chamber of what seems to be the early stage technology ecosystem slash Twitter sphere, everybody everybody seems to be clamoring for the for the generative AI companies. And as we like to in, in the venture world like to colloquially call the pastor investors tourists, uh, they, they seem to say that fintech seems to have tapered off and, and feels boring. While those that have been in the industry for a long time, like yourself, say otherwise. So what's exciting right now? And where do you think the industry is heading or needs to head? Listen, the way the way I um every industry in the the public mind goes through through ebbs and flows. And you know, obviously public markets have spoken on on some types of business models. They're still still bullish on on other types of fintech business models. The way I look at it is, you know, we're investing in companies that are going to take the next 10 years to grow. And so there's maybe a few points on this. One, some of the best companies across all industries are started in, you know, calmer market uh calmer market cycles. Two, all of the software problems that needed to be solved in 2021 still need to be solved in 2023 and arguably there are more problems to solve um, around, you know, transparency and financials, around different regulation. Um, I recently wrote a post on compliance as a competitive advantage. I think that's an area that a lot of um, a lot of strong fintech entrepreneurs are are now going to turn to. Um, and I think plumbing and infrastructure is often some of the key pieces that need to be built, which is by nature boring, but boring companies uh, build very enduring businesses. Uh, and so from, from an investment standpoint, I still find those, I still find those very exciting. And then generative AI, and this is the piece where I would uh, disagree with all of the consulting reports that come out and state that financial services is, is going to be the laggard here. I think this industry has one of the has one of the strongest opportunities to incorporate generative AI, and and we're starting to see this in many different areas. From you know, imagine an, an LLM that was trained on the last ten years of customer support chats across all different banking products. Like finally, you could probably talk to a CS agent that would understand the entire banking services portfolio uh, that provide much much better experience at much lower cost. You can imagine different applications and compliance. You can really walk across a stack of everything that a bank does. This is, of course, still very early days, lots of questions to figure out. Um, but the early experimentation, I think, is very exciting. You know, another public statement that you've made in the past, that's recent past, that's garnered quite a bit of attention is your default global thesis. Would love for you to tell us a lot more about where that comes from. 
Ah, yes, another area why fintech is uh, fintech is exciting, and and this this part has two different angles to it. The first being uh, a corollary to to every company is going to be a fintech company, right? Software companies are adding financial services, and software companies, many of them, are global. Uh, so take Service Titan, for instance, which is uh, you know an operating system for plumbers, electricians. They have operations in the US, they have operations in the UK, they have operations in Australia. And now if Service Titan wants to add bank accounts, which would be a natural financial services extension for all of their plumbers, they're going to have to find a different partner in the US, different partner in the UK, different partner in Australia versus say if they just wanted to add text messages, well, they could just partner with Twilio. And so these global software companies generally don't want to have to find a different partner in every different geography. And so there's a, a class of companies that are starting to build infrastructure for global companies. And that's either doing the hard work to set up the infra in every single one of those geographies, or it's creating a bit of an orchestration layer across a variety of different players. So at least for the software company, it's a lot easier to incorporate that, the, that fintech product. Um, so global software companies incorporating fintech is the first angle on it. The second angle is now, you know, post-COVID when remote work is a lot more common, like it used to be that your first 50 or 100 employees would be based mostly around HQ, which generally was within a mile of wherever the founder lived. Now, and probably a lot of the companies that you're seeing will start up and they'll have employees in two countries, three countries, sometimes 10 countries, right to get started. And so your first 50 employees are around the world. What is the software stack that your company runs on? Like in the US, it would be used to be like, great, you grab Gusto for payroll, you grab one of the expense management companies. Now, if you're in multiple different countries, those companies generally don't exist or they're just starting to exist now, which I think is a interesting product and investment opportunity. Um, you know, we've got two companies there. One is Jeeves, which is a global expense management platform. They can issue local cards in Canada, in Brazil, in the UK, and then reconcile in multiple currencies, which saves finance teams a tremendous amount of time. Um, and then, of course, Deal, which is one of the fastest growing fintechs out there, which allows you to hire people in any country very quickly. Um, and there's still like tax solutions that need to be built, FX solutions that need to be built. And so this is a pretty interesting area where a lot of companies are cropping up. And with this in mind, does this make you more confident to be able to back a company that's local, say in the US, and expect it to move into other countries very fast because of all the tooling that's being built? And or does this give you a higher risk appetite to invest in companies that are in LATAM, as an example, or South Asia, Southeast Asia? I have probably a quarter of my portfolio in, in LATAM, um, and that is often a lot of infrastructure companies and business models that, that I understand really well. And it's actually seeing their pain of, like, for instance, I had a very well-funded company in Colombia uh, that was having trouble getting a corporate credit card. Um, which you could look at their bank account, you could look how they spend, and it was just by sheer nature of the fact that they were they were in Colombia. And so that's what opened my eyes to the the Jeeves opportunity and ultimately led a little bit to that investment is that I could just see across my companies in LATAM, they were spending a lot of time 
on things that U.S. companies barely have to think about. They can just sign up for, for one of the providers. So I think having investments in different geographies is helpful from an investment point of view because it, it makes you aware of things that your companies are spending time on, uh, reconciling payments, hooking into the local payment rails, um, currency risk, and just like there should be software for this. And you look for software and you're like, there isn't software for this. And therefore that creates an investment opportunity. Um, so, so I think having a foot in a few different geographies has actually been very helpful for developing theses in this area. I want to switch gears to you now. I would like you to assess your time as an investor so far. What have you done well? What not so well? And where are you consistently trying to improve? I am constantly asking this question. So you, uh, you, and, you and your um, listeners can, can keep me honest. I think, so a couple of things. I got this advice probably the second week of joining A16Z from, from one of my partners, which was, you make your money on your winners and your reputation on the companies that don't go as plans. And so I, I think one thing I will you know, hope to continue to do throughout my career is just if I if I make a commitment to a CEO that I'm going to invest in their company, that I will fulfill the commitment, I will be there, I will do everything possible to to make that company successful. Obviously, you know, I'm not the CEO, I'm not operating it, I'm a, I'm a board member. But I think just being very steady and present and delivering on commitments, no matter how the company is going. Um, I, I think the thing I've learned on that one is one, it's just the right thing to do. Two, it's the reputationally right thing to do. But three, startups by definition are up and down and sometimes they're going well and sometimes they're going terribly. And if you talk to any you know, wildly successful CEO, they will have several stories of when they were almost out of business so they weren't going to get some fundraising round done. Um, so it's also, I've now learned, just an economically smart decision because you sometimes just don't know. Um, and so... So, so that's kind of point one. Point two, I think how you do venture changes throughout the arc of your career. Like it is very valuable when you've been in this business for 20 some odd years and you can you can sit in a boardroom and like, all right, you know, 15 years ago, this company went through this and this is how they dealt with it. And 10 years ago, this is how it went dealt with this. And I think being able to bring those patterns to, to founding teams is, is very valuable. But when you start, you obviously you obviously don't have that, and I think what I've learned is like you can bring um, a ton of value by just working harder than everyone else. Like know the market cold, know every product person that might be for hire. Like find and meet all the right people at the banks or the payment companies or anywhere your CEOs might want a, a warm connection into, so you can just have that when they need it. Like there's just an element of and. You know, maybe this comes from uh, I tried to be a professional marathon runner for a few years uh, years ago, and it's just like the discipline to just show up and work can bring um, it can just bring a lot. And so I think if you can have that and the pattern recognition and wisdom that comes with being in the job for years, then then you'll be you know hopefully really really good at this job. And so I so I hope to keep that. And then the second part, what am I working on? A, a long list of things, but I think one of the one of the hardest things in this job sometimes is to help teams see what you see, understanding that you like you might be right, but you might not be right. And you know they're always going to know. Like your CEO is always going to know more about their company than you know about the company, and just really appreciating that. 
But sometimes like I'll be working with a company and it'll just be so clear that if they had, you know, world-class VP finance or CFO, it would just, it would just change the directory of the company or they're, you know, they're really missing like this role. And, you know, if you're, if you've never worked with that type of person, it sometimes can be hard to see that you actually need that. And so how do you help teams understand what they could be bringing to their team um, if they haven't seen that before? And so I think that's an element of just having a, you know, a roster of A-plus executives across different functions that are happy to talk to companies, happy to explain what they do, but just being able to help teams get to those places even faster. Help us understand who you are outside of VC and fintech as well. What what keeps you taking? There's a lot of VC and fintech outside of VC and fintech. Might be the might be the short answer. I remember um, when I was leaving Google, I had a very clear had a very clear vision that whatever I worked in next, I wanted it to be the thing that I was reading about on the weekends, that I was doing on the weekends, that I would choose to study in my spare time. Um, and at that time, which is still the time, like it was very much everything around financial services. Like I was just fascinated by it. Um, my husband is a little bit terrified that if anybody broke into our house, they'd think we were laundering money because my my spare my spare reading is basically about financial crimes. Um, and so I do, I do a lot of FinTech and a lot of VC on the weekends. Um, but outside of that passion, um, I still love to run. Um, and so I, I get out uh, fairly often. I will turn any meeting into a running meeting if possible at, at any speed these days, definitely slower than I used to be. And um, and then I'm very lucky to have two little boys that, uh, that keep me pretty active and they're a lot of fun. Final question here for, especially for all the aspiring venture investors listening to the podcast. What do you look for in young investors that you choose to work with? What do you feel are table stakes? And what are things you're willing to coach for? Number one, just work ethic and drive. Like you can tell, like everyone, you can tell when you meet someone that they just have like the passion, the fire, the the drive to succeed. Like they're generally motivated by something. Um, they'll never let a ball drop. Like they're just over delivering on everything way faster. And I think that is maybe I've, I haven't met anyone that has uh, been taught that it seems to be just very endemic in people's personalities with a whole variety of different motivations. So it's probably one, two in this job, you do have to be able to figure out people and there's lots of different ways to, to build relationships and, and to find connection. Um, but I find that's something that's relatively obvious early on. And then after that, generally everything I think is learnable. Like you just need to have the drive to figure out, all right, what is going to be my angle that is going to make me a world-class investor based on my background, right? And so maybe it's product, maybe it's um, an industry that you come from, maybe it's something else. And so it's got to be unique to you. It's got to fit to your personality, but I think you learn that over time. And then deal judgment, I think you learn that over time too. But if you've got the work ethic, you've got the ability to connect with people, I think you can figure out how to be really good at this job. Well, Angela, that just about sums this up. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. 
If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Medium at Wharton Fintech, where you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Austria. And until next time, this is your host, Nihar Boba.